So I now have a, you know, setting on my phone that tells me what time it is in Tokyo because it has been like the most useful thing this summer because I time has confounded me. Uh, but it was really helpful this week because I called up Matoko Rich, who's the New York Times Tokyo bureau chief. And she's reporting on the ground. She's been covering the Olympics and Paralympics games. Um, and I wanted to talk to her after the opening ceremonies. And I was trying to figure out when that would be. So now I know at the time that I recorded it, it was that morning and it was still at night for me on that same day. But for her, it was already the next morning because Tokyo is 13 slash 14 hours ahead of us. So I chatted with Matoko the morning after she went to the Paralympic opening ceremonies. And we chatted, of course, about the Para Games um, and also lingering ongoing COVID concerns, Japan's imperial and, and long history of Paralympic support and a few other things that we had on our minds. So it's here. The Paralympics have started. Um, yes. And Matoko, you are at the opening ceremonies. Uh, you're covering the opening ceremonies of the Paralympic Games. And I know you went to the opening of the Olympics as well. What were your takeaways from the opening of the Para Games? So, I mean, I think this is a, a very small sampling of friends and family and other journalists who are watching with me. But I think that just as an actual ceremony, the Paralympic ceremony was more vibrant, creative. Um, There's a lot of vital energy in the performances. Um, a lot of people with disabilities who were, you know, very talented artists, musicians, dancers participated. So that part of it was actually quite vibrant. I think there was a little bit of a somber mood um, in the kind of creative design of the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. And so it was actually just sort of fun to watch in that respect. There's still that wistfulness and, and um, you know, that bittersweet feeling that I certainly had at the Olympics, as well as the Paralympics that, you know, watching over the sea of empty stands and that when the athletes are doing the March of the Nations, they're waving to cameras, but not spectators. There aren't the huge cheers. Um, there were a couple of really poignant moments in the Paralympic March because the, um, the lead in delegation was the refugee team. And one of the flag uh, bearers, Abbas Karimi, is Afghan. He's a refugee from Afghanistan. He left many years ago, but of course, because of the current chaos, the Paralympic team from Afghanistan was unable to fly into Tokyo because they couldn't get safe flights out of Kabul. So, you know, there's this, he's not only representing the refugee team leading in the entire parade of athletes, but he's the only Afghan athlete at the games um, by default. And then um, there was also the fact that the New Zealand team, which has sent 32 para-athletes, decided not to march in the parade because of COVID fears. And that's really the theme, of course, of this whole entire, both the Olympic and the Paralympics, right, that Tokyo, the IOC, and the IPC decided to go ahead in the face of a pandemic. And um, things actually got worse in terms of the COVID situation in Tokyo and all over Japan. You know, just 90 minutes before the opening ceremonies began, I got the, um, you know, the daily update of number of new cases and particularly severe cases, you know, people who require ventilators or other um, intensive care. And that was at a record high in Japan on the same day that the Paralympic Games opened. So there's definitely a lot of concern about that. Um, in terms of the mood in Japan, that was interesting. We canvassed some people outside of the stadium and, and sad to say, um, there were far fewer people kind of vying to get pictures with the rings or the Paralympic symbol than had been there for the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. That may have been because it was a weekday instead of a Friday night. 
Um, but it might also be an indicator of people's concerns about COVID and also, sadly, the you know lowered interest for the Paralympics as opposed to the Olympics. But one person said, you know, I'm really concerned about COVID, but it wouldn't have been fair to hold the Olympics and cancel the Paralympics. Right. And we were talking about this point um, on the episode this week when we were talking about how um, all too often the Paralympic Games are treated in a kind of stepchild, second class way. And one of the things we were talking about, including with Paralympians and disability activists, is the timing of it, right? Is it relegating it to an afterthought because it's after the Olympics? But then also reading in COVID, the Olympics demonstrably like made COVID worse in the area. And then thinking about the fact that everybody's then coming into it again, was was really I think disturbing. I remember for the opening of the Olympic Games, um, on the television broadcast because there wasn't the buffer of people in seats, we could hear the protesters outside. Um, right. And the thing that was on my mind that you reported on this past week is that despite these kind of rising and continued concerns, they totally you know still said no spectators except they allowed school groups like children. Is that still the case? Yeah, so they weren't at the opening ceremonies. There are a number of events which they're opening to school groups. And the way the organizers have said it, sort of what really appears as an attempt to pass the buck a little bit is that we have this program that was in place largely because we wanted to use the opportunity to educate school children, you know, the future leaders of tomorrow about the importance of diversity and inclusion, which is a very laudable goal. But obviously the circumstances have changed dramatically because of COVID. So it seems like out of one side of the mouth, they're talking about how we're in the middle of a state of emergency and they decided between the Olympics and Paralympics to bar domestic spectators to the Paralympic events. And yet they're going to allow the student group program to go ahead. And and, and that's sort of the pass buck moment was when they said, well, it's really up to the local municipalities or the local principals or uh, school boards and the parents can decide whether they want to send their kids. And as of yesterday, I think out of the 23 wards in um, the greater Tokyo area, 18 wards that said, we're not going to send our kids. Mm. And this has been certainly in the local media has been a big, big issue, which is, you know, it just doesn't make logical sense. How can you say that you need to borrow spectators because of the coronavirus situation, and yet you're going to admit kids who, by the way, are ineligible for vaccinations, um, and then have them, you know, go to these events together. And no matter how many precautions you take, there's always a raising of a risk when you gather people together, and then they go home and they may, you know, they're unvaccinated and they might be um, going home to families where adults are not vaccinated because the rollout has still not gotten as far as we would like it in Japan. It just seems, uh, you know, the media has, I think, rightly been kind of asking these questions that just on the face of it, it seems illogical. But um, it it seems like having had the buck passed to them, a lot of local municipalities, parents, and um, school districts are making the decision on their own. So we'll sort of see as the events roll out how many kids do end up going to the events. I mean, there were a few school groups that went to events during the Olympics. Um, Soccer at um, Kashima Stadium was open to kids. And that was because there were a few events that took place in prefectures that were not then under a state of emergency. But all of the prefectures that are hosting um, events for the Paralympics are under state of emergency. So it's Mm. just, it, it seems like the, you know, the terms of the games have changed and that they haven't adapted to that. 
Right. We talk a lot about the rhetoric of inspiration um, in a way that many Paralympians have like talked about of like, who is the intended audience for that inspiration, right? And right. where their inspiration is found and lies is usually, um, you know, kind of different than what is kind of in commercials or, or being um, framed in, in news reports or stories. And one of the things that caught my eye is like, the way that it was like, oh, this is a moment for these children to see people with disabilities. And right. I was wondering how the rhetoric and kind of using that as a shield for this decision matched up with what you were hearing on the ground there in terms of either from disability activists or just a general awareness of where things stand in terms of resources for people with disabilities um, in Japan and the response to that kind of line of argument. So, I mean, I think it's really complicated because I think that the rhetoric, as you say, is very overwhelming. And even just as a casual listener, I felt, God, you know, this is a lot of pressure on these athletes. When Andrew Parsons, the president of the International Paralympic Committee, gave up to give his speech, I mean, it was filled with things like, you were here to save the world, to change the world. Mm. You know, these athletes have worked really hard to get to where they are. They don't need to add onto it this extra burden of having to literally change the world. And I thought it was interesting that um, as a creative decision that immediately after he spoke, um, they broadcast the We the 15 video that you may have seen mm -hmm. on the screens, which the theme is exactly kind of the opposite of that. Like, hey, we just want to live our lives. We're just like you. We're people. And treat us as people. And in terms of the Paralympics, treat us as athletes. Uh, rather than people with disabilities being heroic and Superman. I think I get the sense that a lot of people are a little bit tired of that rhetoric in the disability community. That being said, talking to disability activists in Japan, they just know that the Paralympics could have been and may still be an opportunity to draw attention to people with disabilities and to open people's eyes. Whether we like it or not, we don't live in a totally inclusive society. And there are a lot of people who, because we don't live in an inclusive society, have an opportunity to interact with people who have disabilities and to see them achieving. And so I think the activists recognize that this is an opportunity that they don't want to lose and that through no fault of anyone, there is the coronavirus pandemic, which is limiting the ability of, of that message to be passed along. Um, but I don't think anyone wants to put actual children at risk to pass that message on. Um, I think they believe that, you know, watch it on TV. Like, let's really encourage, like, everybody sit in your classroom and have an hour of Paralympic viewing. That would be just as good at this point, given the circumstances, as actually showing up and putting your lives at risk. Or maybe that's a little too dramatic, but certainly endangering children's health and potentially the health of their families and their community to have this kind of rhetorical um, moment. In terms of the sort of the broader impact of the Paralympics on facilities and accessibility and the environment for the disabled in Japan, there are some things that have been improved. Uh, I believe Seiko Hashimoto or someone said at the uh, penultimate press conference before the opening ceremony that 95% of train stations in Tokyo um, are either already accessible in that they have elevators and ramps or are on their way to being so. Um, but then someone countered, well, yeah, but head outside of Tokyo and it's quite different. It's not yet the case. And as anyone, say, who's blind or ha needs a wheelchair to get around can tell you that 
just putting an elevator in a building or a train station is not sufficient. There's so much more to being accessible. But you'd rather they have that step than not. I think the other thing that's a big challenge for Japan is that they don't yet have a full sort of implementation of inclusive education or inclusive workplaces. And I think that's something that disability activists are really looking for. And I think the point that you make about this sort of, it's almost a catch-22 in a way that by having the Paralympics straight after the Olympics, it becomes this stepchild. But on the other hand, I've been sort of reading my history about how the Paralympic movement got started and that it was really important in the 1964 Olympics that were held in Tokyo for the original organizers of the Stoke Mandeville Games, which are the, you know, the precursor to the Paralympics, that they be combined with the Olympics. That if they didn't have this opportunity to be combined with the Olympics, they wouldn't get the same kind of attention. So it is, it's, it's more complicated than, you know, binary, I think. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we were talking about, um, and our co-host Brenda's sister, who's a disability activist, um, had called in to talk about too, is that placement. We talked about like, what it would look like to even run them concurrently. Right. Um, Lindsay was talking about when we send a media team, like having it two weeks later is so hard for coverage right. because who's sending a team back to Tokyo in a pandemic, right. right, to do this? That's what we're literally going through. We had a lot of people here for the Olympics, but we don't have as big a team here for the Paralympics. So, um, right. you know, logistically, it's difficult to ask people to give up, you know, five weeks of their life, especially during pandemic when you have to kind of include quarantine and all of that. Yeah. And I did kind of wonder, I mean, I'm sure it would be a logistical nightmare, but it, as I'm watching all of this, I mean, the nature of the Olympics is it's a bunch of different sports happening concurrently anyway. So it does seem a little bit artificial to divide these two events. Right. I mean, why not have them run all at the same time? I mean, you know, I'm not an event organizer, so maybe what I'm asking is actually a logistical impossibility, but there is something to the fact that, you know, if you attend the Olympics, you're never going to see all the Olympic events anyway. You can't get to all of them concurrently. So in terms of coverage, inclusivity, it seems like it would make sense to combine them. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And I'm glad you mentioned the 1964 Paralympic Games. Um, Japan has played a whole, a huge role in the Paralympic movement. 
and a huge role in this is the second Paralympic Games happening in Tokyo. And the only time that the Paralympics have twice happened in a country. Right. And I think that um, when we're thinking about the global kind of Paralympic Paragames movement, it's really important, I think, to center Japan in that growth. Is there a kind of like a palpable feeling from the lay public and understanding of the role that Japan's played? Or is that a history that is still kind of being uncovered or reported on in terms of the connections between 64 and today, or even the role that Japan has played globally in this effort? I think it would be hard for me to generalize, but my sense of it is that you kind of had to have been a little bit of an Olympics geek to have made the connection, even, you know, just between what happened in 64 on any number of fronts to connect to now, because, you know, the people who were alive then are quite old now like there's a whole generation of people who weren't even alive then and then you know certainly it was something that was talked about in the run-up to the games but the extent to which people pay attention um, to that kind of thing until it's right in their face it's hard to tell but one connection that I made instantly you know it's just sort of embodied in the fact that the emperor is the person who officially opens the games and the current emperor Naruhito is the son of the um, two people who did a lot to bring the Paralympic movement to Japan. His parents, the Emperor Emeritus Akito and Empress Emerita Michiko-sama, they were both crown prince and princess in 1964. And they took on the Paralympics as one of their causes. And at the time, you know, it was not that long after the war, um, when you think about it, you know, less than 20 years after the end of the war, they had a huge social interest. She was the first quote unquote commoner to marry into the imperial family in many, you know, over 200 years. She was quite loved by the public. You know, she was very glamorous. So the fact that the two of them were not only embracing and promoting the Paralympics movement, but then thereafter, um, they visited a lot of, you know, unfortunately, the sort of policy of Japan was to kind of warehouse people with disabilities and in institutions, but they made it a big, you know, point of visiting a lot of these places, media in tow, and that, you know, she would get down on her knees to talk to people who were in wheelchairs or bedridden. And again, sort of as a symbolic thing for, for in Japanese culture, the way that the imperial family is regarded, that was very symbolically important. Um, and so the fact that that family has been so supportive of the movement is very kind of part of, I think, why um, the Paralympic movement has been in some ways centered in Japan. And then to have him there again um, at the game symbolically. But again, you'd have to kind of make those three steps. You have to know that history because one of the Twitter memes that was going around is, you know, the emperor spoke for 30 seconds and then the president of the Tokyo Games spoke for six minutes and then the mm. president of the IPC spoke for, you know, whatever, more minutes. So right. uh, you'd have to know that history to make the connection, but it is there. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that history because that is fascinating. You know, those speaking times say so much about power and control and, and yes. the way the IOC and the IPC work. Right. And by the way, Thomas Bach spoke a lot more than that, than any oh, of them. that he did. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think that when we talk about the Olympics and oftentimes, you know, I myself am in this position a lot. We talk about the devastation it usually brings to host cities and things like that. And one of the things I appreciate about the nuance, right, is these stories, right? It's this history. It's the other kind of things that we don't see in some of these larger conversations. And I really appreciate that history. Um, so now that the, the ceremonies have started, 
is there a sense for yourself or people around you? Are you really excited for certain events? I am. I is am. there, you know, athletes you're looking yeah. at? Yeah. I mean, I'm excited about Abbas Karimi, the Afghan athlete who um, was one of the flag bearers for the refugee team. He's a swimmer. Um, I, I think I, I'm going to go get my eye opening by going and watching some wheelchair rugby. My understanding is that the Japanese team is actually a big metal contender. So yes. I'm going to go. And can I tell you, that's my favorite. We did a preview episode. And that's my favorite. And I said when we talked about it, it's because originally it was called Murder yes, Ball. Yes, yes. And it's so <laughs> intense. So you'll have to tell me, I can't imagine it in person, that it just, it seems just like sonically in person to be overwhelming and like the sounds of collision i love it i'm very excited for your experience so yeah i definitely want to go to see that and then um i also want to see some wheelchair basketball um that's apparently like a really tough event to get um permission to get in so i'm hoping i'll get to see some of that um i ended up learning a lot about table tennis during the olympics i had never you know watched it live or you know thought of it even as a professional sport and just sort of had this vague notion of ping pong diplomacy and then kind of watched a lot of it and learned a lot of it. There's this great commentator. He's American, actually, Adam Bobro, who um, does some online commentary and YouTube videos. And he's like a, you know, a table tennis obsessive. And he's still here for the Paralympics, too. Um, so I'm going to chat with him. And, and of course, obviously, table tennis, um, you know, just watching the different ways that table tennis can be played. I mean, one of the things that's super fascinating for me that because I have never covered a Paralympics before is just the the sort of fine slicing and dicing of all the different categories. So it's not just... You know, you can't just say that someone swims the butterfly. It's sort of there are all these different categories depending on their disability. Swimming is really interesting because I think it's one of the most democratizing sports that almost anyone with any disability can participate. Whereas, you know, obviously, you know, wheelchair rugby by definition is someone who's in a wheelchair and not with other kinds of disabilities per se. So I think that um, it'll be just so fascinating to see the different ways in which people with different abilities are playing the same sport, but in kind of different ways. So I'm just really looking forward to seeing some of that. That's really exciting. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, Japan's strength in, in wheelchair rugby. Is there another kind of sense of like the go-to events for the Japanese delegation to really show out in? So I am not totally up to speed on it. I'm just sort of basing it on watching morning television shows. And I think there's a tennis player that everybody's very excited about who already medaled in some previous Paralympics. I mean, the other thing that's been very interesting to me is that how many, you know, people who've been to four or five games there are participating. Um, I think both the flag bearers for Japan are um, returnees. And um, one of the flag bearers, she um, had gone to three Paralympics in the long jump. And then she had a child. And I guess for some reason, um, after pregnancy, she decided she wanted to switch to a different sport. So she's not here for triathlon. So I think that's just also really interesting, the kind of flexibility. And actually, there is um, another historical note from 64 is that because it was only the second Paralympics to run alongside the Olympics, and because it was such a nascent movement, and frankly, because the disability community in Japan was not treated very well, that recruiting athletes to compete for Japan was an issue. And so a number of athletes had to participate in a whole bunch of events. Um, and so I think that that has changed where, you know, now it, it, in the modern era, there are like over 4,000 athletes here and they can specialize. But back in 64, apparently there were athletes who had to, you know, swim and athletics and da, da, da. So. Well, and in 64, I'm wondering in Japan, maybe, um, I don't know if you know this, but in the United States, it's always been interesting, the ties of the pair games to 
um, the military and, and veterans. And that has remained partially because the United States keeps fighting wars. Yes. Um, like endlessly. Yes. And I'm wondering in 64 today, if there was a kind of similar recruitment of veterans in Japan into the, because it seems to me like when I see it today, it's a very American thing. Um, there's a lot of injured veterans. Yeah. That's a really good question that I don't know the answer to. I think it would have been more complicated for Japan because one of the historical notes, uh, as I've been doing some research about this, that I learned is that after the war, because Japan was occupied by the United States um, and that the occupying forces were very concerned about any sense of remilitarization of Japan. And so veterans were not accorded status Mm. um, in Japanese society back then in the same way that they would have been for sure after World War II, greatest generation, all of that, and even now. And of course, the flag, one of the flag bearers for the United States, um, Melissa um, Stockwell, is a a Purple Heart and Bronze Star awardee from the Iraq War. So, you know, it's very present in the American delegation, but um, I I don't know the history for 64, but it's certainly not there now because Japan has not fought any wars in 75 years right that that felt like a flex too at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but no the, i mean i think this is great i'm really uh so thankful for your perspective on the ground i think that it's been a weird um olympic cycle and paralympic cycle because in many ways technology has made the gap between on the ground and at home feel almost you know, inexistent because of streaming and you're right there with camera angles. But then at the same time, um, it's like these stories that then get missed and this kind of on the ground experience is so radically different from how it usually is. So I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you um, about your observations and what you're seeing as we move into, you know, now I think we can finally start seeing the finish line of the Paralympic games as well. I mean, like they just started, but we're at least, you know, two weeks from, the summer of uh, of games and things that have have been in Tokyo. Um, is there a sense of what happens next? Is there, I know there's some facilities. The Olympic Village has been, you know, like they've been. They say this every Olympic cycle, but I think they have a more robust plan. Hopefully, this year to convert that into equitable housing. Um, you know, you have all of these uh, stadiums and facilities is there a sense um do you already hear murmurings of like what happens next um i don't know if there is that much murmuring about it yet i mean to the extent that that they built you know the main kind of centerpiece of the new building was obviously the olympic village the aquatic center and the um stadium and so I don't actually know what the the post-Olympic plan is for the stadium. It's a really nice stadium, um, and it's right in the middle of Tokyo, so I hope they have a good plan. It happens to be right next door to the rugby Mm. stadium, so I'm curious. I mean, I guess the natural use for it would be soccer, Um, but it's obviously, you know, great athletics field, but it's not as if you get a lot of athletics event. I mean, in terms of pro applications, it would probably be soccer, I imagine. Um, The Aquatic Center, you know, it's beautiful. So I hope they find a use for it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a little bit ignorant on this. I need to do a bit of research to find out. No, it's fine. I think that, yeah, this is the question, though. Like, you see these 
you know, beautiful facilities. I, I can't stop thinking about Pyeongchang, like when they did um, the, the winter games there. And one of the ski slopes that they bulldozed a bunch of trees to make mm. was pretty aesthetically, <laughs> but mm. it turned out to be a course that the athletes didn't like um, very much. And that was like slightly, they found slightly like not as challenging. And so they didn't plan to, to schedule any further world events there. But yeah, uh, it was too difficult for the lay right. person to ski on. And so now you just kind of have this bulldoze ski slope. Uh, and so I yeah. think that like sometimes when you look at the um, what gets built for the Olympics, and we saw mm-hmm. this, of course, in Rio with both the Olympics and the World Cup happening so close together, where you have like a stadium in Manaus that nobody can access that is now just right. there, you know? Right. And so part of it is being fairly ignorant in the the kind of topology of Tokyo pre-Olympics. I'm wondering, like, how much feels changed? Yeah, so I don't think... I think that the area that was most dramatically changed is sort of on the water, and the, the plan is to convert, like, I think they've already pre-sold a lot of condos mm. in the um, Olympic Village, and it was actually kind of one of the problems of the postponement, right, is that they had to redo right. all these contracts with people who were planning to move in, and now their um, move-in data is pushed out for a year, so that was kind of a big problem for them. Um, and then, you know, just as it happens right close to where the Times has its bureau, we are across from the old fish market that had already been closed, separate and apart from the Olympics, but then they kind of bulldozed over the mm. part of the fish market was the the wholesale market and turned it into like a bus terminal that has been used for the Olympics. You know, it's kind of this, you know, ugly concrete parking lot. So right. I assume they're going to continue to use it as a parking lot. But for what, I don't know if it'll be a, a, you know, a bus terminal for public buses or what that plan will be. And so that's certainly a topology that has changed. Um, the area where like the aquatic center are, it's, it's, it's a very strange area. Like you go, you know, to get there, it's kind of cumbersome by public transit and you get off the train and you have to walk. I mean, it's only cumbersome for people who need to get to the aquatic center, but it's, you know, it's a long walk from there, but all around it, it's not, it doesn't have the city feel at all. It's just apartment building after apartment building after apartment building or office building or large kind of warehouses for companies, which were there prior to the, to the Olympics. So, I, I don't think it's quite kind of the devastating change or, you know, overhaul or tearing down of beautiful areas that it was for, um, you know, even the previous Olympics in Tokyo or in other places. Not to say that that hasn't happened, but it's I don't think it's quite, you know, what you're describing happening in Brazil and this sort of horrible white elephant that will never be able to be used. It yeah. It seems like it would have to be a colossal, intentional ignoring of this beautiful stadium right in central Tokyo. As it happens, um, I went out to the um, area where the surfing took place and, you know, they're taking down temporary things. They had built lots of tents and um, temporary bleachers and temporary, um, uh, what do you call those, trailers for the press. So they're clearing all of that out now, but then it's just going to be a beach Mm, um, and a pretty good one at that. And, you know, we saw lots of locals, you know, tearing the place up. And we hope that that's the legacy, right, of like the new sports um, in either Olympics or Paralympics are things that people will really embrace after the games are gone. Right. And we have a few new sports at the Paralympics this year um, right. that that are exciting additions as well. 
Uh, so what's first on your agenda for the pair of games? What, are you going to something today? Uh, I probably won't go today, but yeah, I definitely want to go see some wheelchair rugby this week and swimming. Swimming. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Matoko, thank you so much for giving us that history and a view from Japan and what's happening on the ground. And we wish you a very uh, safe and, and enjoyable Paralympics. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, of course, for coming on Bernal. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Uh-huh.